good, good afternoon and welcome. My name is, is Rachel Stoll. I'm the senior associate here at Stimson, and I serve as the director of the Center's Conventional Defense Program, where we examine a variety of issues related to the international arms trade, including the export and use of unmanned aerial vehicles, which we are going to call drones, which I know will annoy many of you um, here in the room and on uh, online, but that's that's the sort of lexicon of the day, and we're going to embrace it. Um, I apologize for our late start. I promise you, for those of you who are in DC, you'll be out of here in time to watch the first pitch of the Nationals game. Do not worry. Um, hopefully, we'll have a good result today, and you can take that however you wish, if you're a Cubs fan or a Nationals fan. Um, so thank you all for joining us uh, today for what I think will be a really engaging and timely discussion of the Trump administration's approach to U.S. drone policy and perhaps issues surrounding the use of force more broadly. And what I want to do today is really have a discussion. So while we, the panel, are up here to sort of provide some introductory remarks, what I'd like to do is have a discussion about the policy changes that the Trump administration may or may not pursue uh, regarding the U.S. drone program and how the United States engages in counterterrorism operations overall and what the implications of those potential changes may be. So just in case um, some of you are new to this subject, as, as you may know, um, over the course of its eight years in office, the Obama administration often looked to armed drones to conduct targeted strikes and counterterrorism operations uh, around the world. The program did face criticism and controversy due to the use of drones outside what were traditionally referred to as active combat zones, including in places like Pakistan and Yemen, Somalia, and some other places as well, and also faced uh, criticism due to the level of secrecy. Um, that surrounded some of the uh, U.S. drone program. And we can talk about how that evolved over time and if we're seeing any backsliding on that um, level of transparency today. So in response to some initial criticisms, the Obama administration began to take some steps to improve transparency and accountability within the U.S. drone program, and particularly at the end of the administration, set a tone um, for a more open and transparent program. If we look at where we are then today, in the first year, we're not even actually finished, we're like in 10 months here, nine months and a few days, um, the Trump administration has demonstrated a willingness to use uh, lethal force in response to a variety of global security challenges and has continued um, not only the use of armed drones in several theaters, but actually expanded the theaters in which drones um, are being used. And there are reports that have indicated that the Trump administration seems poised to walk back some of the, what they see as constraints or restraint that was established under the Obama administration. And so we're all sort of watching and waiting to see how, how these um, play out. So these sort of initial actions and policy proposals that we've heard about from the Trump administration um, bring to light some of the ongoing concerns that I think many of us have about how the U.S. uses armed drones and how it uses lethal force more broadly. And I think really underscores the need for open discussion on ways to ensure meaningful accountability and oversight over U.S. lethal operations abroad. So with that, I'm really, um, in that context, I'm really delighted to welcome our panel um, 
to discuss these issues in greater detail. And perhaps all of us together can shed light on the ways forward um, in which we can look to establish a responsible US drone policy. And I will just say in my own personal view, one that establishes sort of an appropriate precedent for other countries to also employ as they seek to acquire similar capabilities. So joining us today, and we'll start here on my right, um, are Alex Moorhead from Columbia University's Human Rights Institute. Um, to my far left is Walid Al-Hariri from the Sana Center for Strategic Studies. And then next to me is Luke Hartig from the National Journal. So their bios are on sheets on either side of the room. Um, but just to give you a bit of background on their sort of work on these issues, Alex serves as the director of the Counterterrorism, Armed Conflict, and Human Rights Project at the Human Rights Institute at Columbia University, where he engages with government officials, academics, and civil society groups to strengthen human rights and international law considerations in counterterrorism operations and armed conflict. Walid heads the New York office of the Sana Center for Strategic Studies, where he works on and advises UN agencies and international organizations on Yemen-related policy issues. And in June, the Human Rights Clinic and the Sana Center released a report on the US drone program, which is available also on both sides of the room, that offered recommendations for improving transparency and accountability. So Alex and Wally will be able to provide, I think, some more insights on that report, but also put that in a larger context of what is happening um, in the uh, Trump administration. Luke currently serves as the executive director of the National Journal's Network Science Initiative and is a fellow with New America, but many of you probably know him from his uh, previous life where he served as senior director for counterterrorism at the National Security Council within the Obama administration. So I look forward to hearing and learning from them. And so we'll start, I think, with Luke to give us some insights on the developments in US drone policy and the reported changes under the Trump administration and why such changes may cause concern or at least something to keep track of. Great. Well, thanks, Rachel. I appreciate that. Um, I thought it'd be useful to just start with a little bit of a laydown of where I thought we were at uh, at the end of the Obama administration um, and then what's changed over the course of the first few months. I'll try to minimize any editorializing and really just focus on what are the most significant changes uh, in the framework. So as folks in this room are probably generally aware of, but let's worth just a quick review. Um, the, the Obama uh, drone policy, as it were, pertaining to strikes outside areas of active hostilities, and there's a lot of these kind of jargon terms that come up, so please let's ask questions if those don't fully make sense. But it, to describe actions in places like Yemen and Somalia and Libya, um, was based on a 2013 document, the Presidential Policy Guidance. It's been released under FOIA. You can look it up. It's a really great read. Um, and it gives kind of four, four kind of main components for how we thought about uh, counterterrorism and the use of force. One is that there, it was really important when you're outside of areas of active hostilities, outside places where you have substantial amounts of US forces, particularly combat forces on the ground engaged, that there's a higher standard for the use of force, that we are constraining the use of force, and that those standards apply differently than it would in a hot war zone. That might have to do with the pace of strikes. Um, certainly, you can't go into most of these countries and just have an unchecked drone campaign. But I think what was also very important for President Obama was to make sure that we were only taking action at something that was kind of the utmost national policy concern. And the standard that was established was that a threat we would target would pose a continuing imminent threat to US persons. 
Similarly, in kind of the second big uh, pillar of the strategy was uh, ensuring that there was the utmost precision and discrimination prior to taking action. So um, before taking a strike, uh, the relevant commander would have to assess that capture was infeasible, uh, and only then could they take the strike. And when they took the strike, uh, the commander had to assess with near certainty that civilians would not be harmed uh, in that strike. President Obama felt that that was the highest he could reasonably set the standard and ensure civilian protection while still being able to go after the threats that we face. I think critically, and kind of the third pillar of this is underpinning the whole thing, was, um, was a really considered interagency process that reviewed operations or operational concepts before they went forward. And the idea here being that there are uh, aspects pertaining to law, international law, diplomacy, um, partnership uh, considerations, things that fall outside of the traditional purview of the operators. And so it was important to make sure that you brought together relevant players from other agencies to review those. And then finally, um, you know, and this is probably the most incomplete part of the Obama uh, agenda on drones, was a move toward greater transparency, both on the legal and policy framework that underpinned our counterterrorism work, which I think we actually did a pretty good job of, and then on the individual operations that we undertook, where it's very much, I would not give us uh, the administration a good grade on how far we went uh, in disclosing those operations. So early in the Trump administration, we're still trying to piece things together, and there hasn't been any sort of public rollout of a new policy, and so everything we're doing is kind of pieced together based off of reporting from anonymous sources who, I think General McMaster said today, are treasonous by discussing uh, deliberations, but, um, uh, but, but it's piecing together what, what might actually be happening in the field and in the, the few places where there are continued uh, moves toward transparency. So the first thing that President Trump did when he came into office was put in place a 180-day uh, kind of moratorium on the PPG standards, at least in places like Yemen and Somalia, so that the, uh, the relevant commanders could, could take effective action uh, to deal with the terrorist threat. We don't know what kind of parameters were put in place around those, but we do know a little bit about the operations that took place under that standard. One, is which, one of which was that there was a pretty dramatic increase in strikes in Yemen shortly after that was uh, approved. Um, I think something like 50 or 60 strikes in the early part of this year over the course of about two months, which is substantially higher than what uh, outside groups have reported uh, about U.S. operations over any uh, other period. However, that appears to have coincided heavily with a, uh, a Yemeni and Emirati uh, and potentially Saudi ground campaign. So it may have been actually support to ground forces and kind of not the traditional uh, concept of, a, of targeted killing. In Somalia, we really didn't see much change in policy at all. In fact, General Waldhauser, the AFRICOM commander, said, you know, even though I have this greater flexibility, because of some of the uncertainty on the ground in Somalia right now, particularly around the famine, I'm going to leave the near certainty standard in place for preventing civilian casualties. Fast forward to September, and New York Times has reported that there has been a pretty significant modification of the, uh, the PPG, and that the principals, the president's cabinet, have recommended to the president, not that he hasn't approved it yet, but they've recommended to the president a new document called Principal Standards and Procedures that would replace the PPG. We don't know much about how long it is and who all it, it, the directive goes to and whatnot, but we do know a few things about it that are useful for thinking and, and assessing how far uh, we've moved away from what the Obama framework was. First of all, I think there are a couple of things from that new document that seems to affirm um, some of the core strategic tenets of the Obama administration. And from my perspective, uh, very much incorporate kind of the professionalism uh, of the foreign policy and national security career professionals uh, shaping the current administration's thinking. 
So one of those is that uh, this construct of there being operations inside an area of active hostilities and outside of area of active hostilities, in other words, that we would treat operations in Yemen and Somalia different than we would in Iraq and Syria, appears to hold. Um, and that the PSP applies to everything outside of kind of the Iraq and Syria and Afghanistan type context. I think that's actually significant. It actually says we're not going to go back to a patchwork of authorities in different places. We're going to say that this, this sets of rules for these places, and they're going to be a tighter set of rules. Um, and then when you go into Iraq and Syria where you're in full-scale war, you're going to have a different set of rules governing uh, action. Secondly, and probably the biggest victory and the biggest headline that comes out of the PSP uh, is that the near certainty standard for preventing civilian casualties remains in place. Um, pretty substantial. I, I wouldn't have predicted that. I would have predicted potentially a slightly lower standard. Um, I, I do fundamentally believe that our operators see the, both the moral and the strategic imperative of, uh, of preventing civilian casualties, but I can imagine a world in which they might have pushed for greater flexibility. So the near certainty standard is, a, I think, a big victory um, for the old framework. Two things that have changed pretty dramatically in the opposite direction is that this continuing imminent threat standard, in other words, you can only take action against those who pose a continuing imminent threat to US persons is gone. And we don't know if there's any other sort of governor that's going to replace it. I think it is important to have some sort of a governor because, uh, as I said at the outset, there are a few countries where you're going to be able to engage in an unchecked campaign of strikes. And it is important from a policy perspective to say, we're only going to uh, use lethal force to meet certain national objectives. And what we know so far is that the interagency review process uh, is being phased out, um, or at least a heavy portion of it delegated to the Pentagon. Um, it's very difficult to, uh, to assess, uh, well, I guess I should say it's not, it's not surprising to see that come about. Uh, certainly the interagency review process of the Obama administration was heavily criticized. I disagree with most of those critiques, having participated in that uh, review process, but there was a lot of criticism of that, um, of that process as overly micromanagement and the such, and so uh, to see that change is not, uh, not hugely surprising. I think there are a few things that, are, that we need to be watching as we move forward. One of which is, a lot has changed since 2013 when Obama put out the PPG, and one of which is that um, you know, places like Yemen, Somalia, Libya have become more complicated, and it's not so clearly a black and white world of Iraq, Syria on the one hand, or at that time, uh, Afghanistan on the one hand, full-scale combat, and these other theaters. What we see on the ground right now in Yemen looks a whole lot like war to me, and what we see on the ground in Libya, probably the same thing. That said, we probably don't want to get sucked into all those internal conflicts, and yet, so there should still be some sort of a, uh, a higher standard for those places. Um, but it's not clear if the definition is going to change to reflect uh, the, the nature of the current conflicts in which we find ourselves engaged. Similarly, there's been a lot of discussion over the last couple of years around, um, around what support to ground operations look like. That's to say, if a partner is going after the enemy, a shared enemy, what can we do in terms of providing lethal support to their efforts? And in this area, um, uh, similarly, we don't know if the, PP or the PSP will have some sort of a carve out to allow for that type of support or exactly what that will um, look like. There's a whole slew of questions around capture operations. I'll sort of set those aside since this is primarily about the use of lethal force, but some pretty significant questions about how they're going to um, uh, detain different uh, types of uh, individuals and put them in Gitmo and what we're going to do about the US citizen who's currently being detained in, um, uh, in Iraq at the moment. And then finally, and I know Alex will speak to a, a good uh, chunk of this, is that there's some pretty significant questions um, uh, around the transparency agenda and well, whether that will continue. 
certainly we've seen U.S. Central Command continue with a lot of the announcement of specific strikes in the theaters that it oversees. Uh, we have not seen the Trump administration make a major speech yet uh, around the legal and ethical and policy frameworks for its counterterrorism program. Um, some of the key officials who would make those speeches, namely the top lawyers at the, the Pentagon and at the State Department, haven't even been nominated at this point. Um, and so you know, I think it remains to be seen whether they will continue with that agenda or whether they will see transparency as similarly important. So I'll stop there. Well, I think and just to add to that point, because I think it's a nice um, transition, so thank you, Luke. But as, as you were talking, I was wondering, when you said transparency, will this PSP even be public? Right? Will this be something that we will actually know there has been a shift in policy? Will, you know, is there going, if there's not a major speech, if there's not a major pronouncement, how will we know um, what the policy is? So I think. Yeah, I mean, and look, the Obama administration kind of tried to have that both ways, to be right. frank. I mean, we, you know, the president gave a big speech, but the document remained highly classified until finally uh, the Department of Justice stopped defending uh, its secrecy in uh, FOIA litigation. So. Right. And so will that precedent be sort of followed by the Trump administration, I think, is still an open question. And I think that's a, a great segue to, to Alex to talk about and maybe broaden the aperture a bit to talk about not only your new report, but also how um, transparency is important to understanding sort of not only use of force, but how it relates to the legality of, of the strikes themselves and what that, what that means for, for sort of all of our work in the future. Yeah, thanks, Rachel, and thanks to the Stimson Center for hosting, um, hosting this. I've got a bit of a cold, so hope you can hear me all right. Um, yeah, this is really a timely and important discussion. You know, Luke has highlighted some of these reports of proposed policy changes on loosening uh, these policy limitations on the use of force. There are also reports that the CIA is being given expanded authority to carry out strikes. I'll touch on some of um, those concerns and reports that there may be um, an expansion to new theaters, new places in which, and countries in which um, the Trump administration will use lethal force. So I think it's a really important time to be discussing the legacy that was left by the Obama administration what the future holds for the Trump administration, and, and to really reignite a broader debate about when and how the US government uses force. Um, as, as Rachel mentioned, the concerns around the use of drones and the use of force more broadly by the Obama and Bush administrations were wide ranging. They included questions around the legality of um, the use of drones, transparency and secrecy, um, the strategic effectiveness, the ethics of their use. What I'm going to focus on today um, really is drawn from our report that there are copies around the table that we did, uh, the Columbia Human Rights Clinic, together with the SANA Center, um, which is a comprehensive um, review and analysis of US practice between 2002 and 2017, focused on, on the issue of transparency. And it really it goes into detail reviewing the extent of US secrecy and transparency about lethal operations overseas, sets out a framework for transparency against which we evaluate um, US policy. And we provide recommendations for further reform. And what I want to focus on today is really three key areas. Firstly, I'll talk a bit about why transparency is important. Um, I think it's useful to run through the reasons and the different rationales for transparency in this area. 
how transparency is possible. There's been a great deal of secrecy in this area. There's a lot of pushback against transparency, and it's, I think it's useful to demonstrate how transparency is uh, possible in this area. And finally, to touch on some of the limitations of pursuing a transparency-only agenda. And I'll try and put this in the context of some of the recent developments. Um, so firstly, transparency. Why is transparency important? So firstly, it really matters to people, people that have monitored, you know, uh, spoken to civilian victims of strikes and families in Yemen and Somalia and Pakistan, um, really care about knowing who, who carried out this strike, what did they do, um, why has this happened to me, and, and I think Walid will touch more on this issue. Secondly, transparency advances U.S. strategic interests. It helps enhance the legitimacy of U.S. operations. If the U.S. is doing everything in secret, um, but has claims that they're doing it in accordance with the rule of law or carefully crafted policies, um, secrecy doesn't show that, um, and transparency reveals that. Transparency also deters harm. Um, the potential for future exposure makes government actors, you know, operators, commanders more likely to act lawfully. And, and this is actually one of the concerns around giving the CIA greater authority is, is the lack of transparency around uh, CIA use. Um, transparency also promotes informed debate and is crucial to democratic accountability. You know, we're talking about uh, government's claim to use lethal force to kill people in other countries. Um, and the US people, um, Congress, have a right to know about the policies that are carried out in their name and to properly consent to them. It also, you know, may sound a bit strange saying this in the current context, but sets a good precedent for future administrations and other governments uh, to follow. You know, drones are proliferating. If um, the US is happy with uh, secret drone use by other states, Russia, Iran, and so on, um, then it, it, it could carry on operating them in secret. But showing that it's possible to be transparent about these operations helps set the bar for the rest of the world. Transparency also upholds the rule of law. And again, this goes a bit back to the democratic accountability point by clearly um, explaining what the legal rules are that bind um, the government that's important for the rule of law domestically, Congress, and people know that you're abiding by the law, and also internationally, so that uh, the international legal order is reinforced. And finally, transparency is required by and advances respect for international law. There are specific requirements under international law to report the use of force in self-defense, for example. Um, victims of violations of international law have a right to a remedy, which includes the right to truth about what happened and information, and so on. Just moving on, um, I want to talk more now about how transparency is possible. And the reason I want to talk about this is because you know, for years there has been a lot of pushback against transparency and there was a great deal of secrecy surrounding US use of drones and use of lethal force overseas more broadly because it was, there were claims of national security. We can't release this information because it will damage national security. And what's interesting is, you know, we, in our report, we evaluated US practice. And I, I really don't want to hold the US practice up to be the gold standard because we gave them poor marks in a number of areas, but there were also some important reforms in the latter years of the Obama administration that showed that information that previously was claimed to had to be kept secret could be disclosed. 
And I think it's useful to reflect upon that and, and make suggestions for further reform. So we evaluated the US government in four key areas, and th this is what our framework sets out. And it's a framework that could be applied also to other governments, and, and it's hopefully useful in that context as well. So firstly, transparency about the legal and policy framework and basis for strikes. Secondly, transparency about factual information, you know, uh, civilian casualty data, acknowledgements of specific strikes. Then thirdly, transparency about decision-making processes. And fourthly, transparency about accountability and oversight uh, processes and actual accountability measures that are taken. And what we saw, you know, as uh, Luke and Rachel have touched on, uh, where there were positive uh, improvements. Um, and what I would like to do is highlight some of those and also illustrate some of the data points. Looking forward, what should we be looking to in the Trump administration to see if there is backsliding on the issue of transparency or, or, or further reforms being made? So, as Luke said, in, in 2010, from 2010 onwards, the US government, having not explained really at all the legal basis for strikes, began to publicly explain what its legal reasoning was. Um, and in 2016, it released a, a, a detailed, fairly detailed compendium of the legal and policy frameworks applicable to strikes. And that was an Im important document. Um, it has its limitations, which I'll come to, but it was important. And what's interesting about this, it was accompanied by a presidential memorandum which um, called, which mandated the updating of this report yearly. So the last time this was reported on was December 2016. It'll be interesting to see, does the Trump administration continue and publish a new one in December 2017? It's a, it's a landmark point to see whether the Trump administration is continuing or changing. Similarly, and I won't go into more detail on this, but whether these policy rules, if they are being revised and um, if they have been, will they ever be published? And I think those are important questions to be pushing the administration on. Um, there's no guarantee that they, they will be published, but it was a really important step that the last administration took to publish them. And, and thanks also to the ACLU for pursuing that um, with, with litigation. Another important step but limited was the disclosure and publication of civilian casualty figures, um, statistics in December 2016. They were also released, they, they covered sort of seven years, 2009 to 2015. And the Obama administration on, literally on January the 19th, 2017, released its civilian casualty figures for 2017. Now those uh, were released pursuant to an executive order on civilian casualties, which was another important reform. <coughs> and that mandates the uh, reporting on civilian casualties each May of each year. So in May 2018, the Trump administration should be reporting that. And that's another key moment to be looking is the Trump administration doing this or not? Um, similarly, um, the US government, and actually the US military started acknowledging specific strikes, like individual strikes that happened in Somalia from 2014 and in Yemen from 2016. And that was an important element. For years, you had no acknowledgement of numerous strikes in Pakistan, Somalia, and Yemen people not knowing who had struck, when, and why. Now it's pretty regular practice for the military to acknowledge those strikes, and they've continued to do so under the Trump administration. What is a concern, though, in that respect, is if the CIA starts taking more strikes, because the CIA does not acknowledge its strikes, and strikes in Pakistan have remained almost uh, completely secret. 
Another important moment was in 2015, an Italian and American citizen, were, civilians were killed accidentally in a strike in Pakistan. And that led to a huge, uh, enormous amount of disclosure, presidential apology by President Obama, promise to pay compensation, which I understand has been fulfilled in one case. Um, uh, a lot of detail. You can go onto the White House website or the archive version, and you find 40 pages worth of discussion of the operation and so on. And that was really an important moment in showing what could be disclosed. But now I'll segue into where there are areas for further uh, improvement. And one is exactly that, uh, naming civilians and acknowledging uh, individual civilian deaths and injuries has not really happened much. Um, th that was the isolation. So you had the Italian and American civilian killed, and you had this enormous amount of disclosure, apology, compensation. But for hundreds of Pakistanis, Somalis, Yemenis, um, uh, killed and injured in strikes, there's been almost no acknowledgement or uh, official naming of what happened or apologies. And apart from the moral and legal problem with that, there's also, for US policy and optics in those countries, it looks pretty terrible that you, you go to such great lengths to name an Italian and an American, but you don't do the same for Yemenis, Pakistanis, and, and Somalis. Um, the rules and the policies remain unclearly explained. You know, uh, some of these terms about where the policy applies and when, um, there's not a, any explanation of the parameters. And we get lost, you can get quite lost in the technical detail, but these terms really matter because they set the beginning and end for when these policies apply. They determine who uh, uh, the US is at war at at any given time or is allowed to be fighting. Um, uh, and that's one, another key problem. Another element is that the US government did disclose one legal memorandum which set out the legal basis for a specific strike against Anwar al-Awlaki in Yemen in 2011. But they have not disclosed numerous other memoranda explaining the legal basis for other strikes. And that's one thing we call on for, um, uh, for reform. So finally, I just want to move on to limitations of transparency. And I don't want to under, underplay transparency here because it is essential. It matters to victims. It's a crucial prerequisite for any kind of accountability. I'm not just talking about a criminal accountability, but political accountability, uh, remedy, and the truth for victims. Also for the rule of law and for US legitimacy and strategic interests. But it's not a panacea for all of the issues and the concerns and the controversies surround, surrounding the use of force. And I think this is where it's important to um, contextualize this in some of the proposed policy changes, which again bring to the fore concerns around the legality um, of US strikes in different countries um, and uh, and really a broader question of whether the US um, is going to continue to use force and continue to engage in war in, 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 an, um, in an array of different places. Um, so some of these concerns include, and, and I think the loosening of these policy uh, limitations as reported, there are concerns really that this will... Um, well, you have to contextualize this um, in terms of what the Obama administration's baseline was, which there are already concerns about the legal framework that, or legal interpretations that the US puts forward. 
Um, and these include not just whether the U.S. is carrying out targeting in a place which is at war or at peace, and there's a big debate amongst lawyers um, about um, whether you're, uh, the places where the U.S. claims it's at war is actually at war because they should be applying a much more restrictive framework, um, but also about who they're allowed to target in war um, and whether they are genuinely acting in self-defense. And these policy limitations that Luke was talking about were put in place partly to alleviate concerns of partners, Europeans and so on, who were um, concerned about um, where the US was using force. And I think these will again um, uh, come to the fore. Some of the key concerns are the US targeting lower level targets, people that don't pose an imminent threat. Um, should the US be engaging? Will that substantially broaden US engagement in these different theaters? Uh, as Luke alluded to, the change decision-making process, does that present problems in terms of oversight and accountability? Greater authority to the CIA, which presents a real challenge in terms of secrecy, uh, much greater secrecy and accountability, um, and this potential expansion to new countries. Um, so just to finish, I, uh, I just wanted to reiterate that transparency is, um, is important for the reasons I listed. It matters to victims. It's strategically important. It's important for the rule of law and democratic accountability. Transparency is possible, and I think looking back to some of the reforms that were made, it shows that uh, transparency is possible in a way that may not originally be conceived and that this needs to be built on. But transparency has its limitations. Um, and we need to watch for some key developments in the new future, including will this new policy be disclosed? Um, will there be new operations against new groups in new countries? Will civilian casualty data and legal and policy uh, explanations and frameworks be released? And will the CIA be given an expanded role in this, in this um, program? Thanks. Thanks. You know, I'm always struck when we're, when we're talking about sort of the differences between the Obama administration and the Trump administration in terms of this issue and how many of us are wistful for sort of the, the standards that we saw in the Obama administration, even though at the time many of us were critical that those didn't go far enough. So there's this strange irony here that I, I'm continually um, brought back to. But I think this issue of transparency and why it's important really sheds light on why we're even having this conversation. And that's how it's impacting people on the ground, people who are affected by these conflicts where these strikes are happening, um, and how that can potentially affect US national security and US foreign policy interests in the long term. I think there are some short-sighted um, views when we're thinking about drone strikes that have been implemented since the Bush administration, really in terms of their um, being used for an immediate result, but sort of that long view of what's happening on the ground, what it's fomenting on the ground, how these are going to come back and affect US policy and US personnel in the long run, I think sometimes gets lost. And I'm hoping that Waleed can shed some light, sort of give us that on the ground, that personal perspective about what the impact of strikes are on affected populations in countries which, as Luke said, since not just 2013, but since you know 2001, have become far more complex than perhaps any of us realized that, that they would be. So thank you, Wally. Sure, thank you. Um, yes, I will uh, focus on specifically uh, Yemen in relation to US uh, counterterrorism uh, in this country, uh, while highlighting the impact of drones on civilians and whether uh, is whether 
uh, drones are effective. Uh, drones are one of the counterterrorism um, tactics. Uh, counterterrorism has many tactics, and uh, drones are one of them. Are they effective? That's a question, uh, a broader question to the U.S. and uh, countries employing these uh, tools. Uh, if you look at the case of Yemen, unfortunately, um, missile strikes from drones, uh, drones have became a defining symbol of America for most Yemenis. If America had built a school in Yemen, most Yemenis don't know about it. If America had built a hospital in Yemen, most Yemenis don't know about it either. But what most, almost every Yemeni have heard uh, about are the civilian deaths uh, uh, as a result of the drone. The, the herders who, uh, who have their sheep and goats have uh, been targeted and then because of the remnants cannot be distinguished between them and the animals have been buried together. The weddings have been turned into funerals because of these mistakes. The, uh, the ordinary people who are just going by in their own uh, to, the, to work and find themselves victims of, of drone strikes without any answers. There are many um, untold stories and uh, endless suffering of civilian victims uh, to drone strikes. Uh, the first, uh, and very sadly, the first thought that a generation of Yemenis now have when they think of America um, is the drone flying uh, on the sky hunting. And they feel, they sense this buzz in the community, affect an entire community, not just uh, in the, uh, specific cases. And uh, the drone program remains uh, extremely secretive, at, as uh, Alex had also mentioned. And since the first drone strike in 2001 in Yemen, uh, in, in, uh, 2001 was in Afghanistan, the US government did not disclose any information about how many people were killed in drone strikes until last year. And even until now, only about 20% of drone strikes have been, uh, have, in, in general, have been acknowledged, according to the military records and the numbers. And the government says, from 2009 to 2016, as Alex also referred uh, earlier, that there were between 65 to 117 civilians killed, and yet they didn't uh, mention who were these individuals, their names, ages, gender, or anything about them. And uh, many have questioned the accuracy of these numbers, independent organizations, human rights organizations. They estimate uh, more numbers in this specific time period, about four, 474 civilian deaths uh, from 2009 to 2016. Uh, there are also no officially, officially reported apologies or redress or legal cases taken by courts for victims. And those cases that have reached the doors of uh, the courts, the U.S. government have invoked the state secret privilege. And the court uh, uh, then uh, take into consideration the, the political matters of these, case, of these cases, which divert them, divert the decisions to the executive. So it remains uh, hanged, the, the, the cases remain hanged. Uh, uh, with secrecy. And this denies the victims a right to a remedy, a right which, uh, which they are entitled under, under international law. There is, however, an exception if, uh, if the victims are Western citizens, like uh, uh, Alex mentioned. Uh, in May 2005, uh, former President Barack Obama came out uh, publicly and admitted that an American and an Italian citizen in Pakistan were killed by mistake. The, there, there was um, a condolence payment and a balagi, uh, though, though the majority of survivors from families from the vast majority of strikes in Pakistan, Somalia, and Yemen 
have received no acknowledgement by the government at all. As a family of victims said, we, we are civilians like you. We want to know, we want justice. We, know, we want to know uh, the truth, why we have been targeted. And we want dignity. These are basic things that they have not been able to get. Uh, and this uh, adds into the, 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 the emphasis of why transparency is important to the civilian victims, as well as for citizens of democratic countries like this. Citizens here, they, they have the right to know what are these governments are doing in other countries and how they have, uh, have impacted the image of the, these countries and these, uh, in these communities. Also, beside the civilian victims I mentioned earlier, drones have maybe best described as a self-defeating tool, tool that creates a problem it is meant to, uh, to counter, because drones create general fear, uh, public anger, and they create uh, trauma. Um, and drones also act as a propaganda tool uh, for Al-Qaeda and many affected communities. While the drone have killed hundreds of uh, Al-Qaeda leaders and members, the, drone have, the drones have actually created far more extremists. And we have seen this through studies by the Sana'a Center in, in Yemen. One of the Sana'a Center studies finds that Al-Qaeda uh, in Yemen has become arguably more powerful, resource-rich, uh, resource entrenched, and operating with more institutional flexibility and adaptive capacity, uh, capacity than ever before, given the current uh, conflict and security vacuum, but the, the, this has been also existing before uh, the, the, the recent conflict, too, in terms of excessive use of drone strikes in, the, in Yemen. Um, under, under Bush, and then increased under Obama, and the same policies continued under, uh, under Trump, but in a more excessive uh, uh, numbers. And the use, the use of uh, military force alone, the study finds, will uh, almost certainly will fail to defeat them. Um, this is because a drone program overlooks the complexities, as you mentioned, the complexities of the interconnected historical context and the social political, as well as in the tribal and security economic and economic dynamics in Yemen, through which Al-Qaeda utilize and rise from, um, from time to time. And these field strategies allow the group to, ta to tailor its, uh, its tactics and lever leverage local circumstances to expand its support base, operational capacity, and absorb losses from, uh, from, what the, from these uh, drones. But also important to note that uh, these drone strikes are operating primarily when it, case to, when it comes to the case of Yemen uh, in collaboration with an authoritarian regime over the, uh, before 2011 with a, uh, with a regime that ruled for 33 years. So there is a question about consent. Are, uh, the consent comes from the elites who are uh, uh, collaborating with other countries. So there is a public anger in the ground, and they necessarily doesn't give the consent to the, to the elites to give other countries to intervene in countries like Yemen. Or at least these authoritarian regimes have not taken these cases in order to uh, petition them in other countries or say, these are mistakes and we have to deal with them. Uh, so there is a, almost all, an additional compl uh, complicit uh, element to these uh, governments uh, collaborate with foreign countries. And the question comes back to the U.S. about uh, are they okay with dealing with this, uh, these regimes without taking into account the public, uh, the public uh, um, uh, sentiments and the public uh, 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 perspectives. In this sense, um, 
also the, the US military assistance of Yemen uh, over two decades have, um, have had uh, undemocratic, uh, uh, as I mentioned, undemocratic and uh, destabilizing consequences. Most of the previous US military aid has fallen in the hands of uh, armed groups, like currently the Houthis, who take over the, the capital, and they are uh, having these arms. Um, and uh, this, uh, this, uh, can, this mistakes and uh, misguided policies continue. Uh, in this sense, uh, I will say that the US policymakers are failing to uh, properly assess the rea realities before them. And you also could see this uh, um, currently uh, at, when you look at the current foreign policy trajectory. Um, shortly after taking office, President Trump increased drone strikes by approximately threefold in Yemen, increased operation, uh, operations by special forces. Uh, also, the Trump administration's 2017 budget proposal outlines massive cuts in U.S. diplomatic and humanitarian spending and, and increases in the defense uh, spending. Um, you could look into how distant they are from the realities on the ground and how, uh, how the impact have been. And this is while, um, this is while, Yemen, uh, the, uh, uh, while the UN announced early this year that Yemen faces the world's largest food insecurity emergency. And um, I will say, uh, before I stop, I could stop here, but counterterrorism efforts cannot be um, viewed in isolation from the wider conflict today. Uh, but the US have continued to look at Yemen as a source of threat, not as a source of opportunity like its neighbors when they go and invest billions of dollars. And uh, uh, this, this has a lot of negative consequences. Um, I, I will, uh, and uh, this narrow focus to the military lens have, uh, uh, spectacular, uh, have tremendously failed uh, and is clear to everyone in Yemen, but uh, we don't see here acknowledging. Uh, I will stop here and open to discussion and can answer any questions. Th thanks, Walid. And I was struck by something you said at the very beginning. You said um, drones are, are a tactic. You know, are they effective? And as for many years, I've questioned whether or not drones have been a tactic or if they have been seen really as the strategy itself for whatever we are trying to accomplish. And I think in a place like Yemen, that becomes the question, what, what is our objective? What are we trying to uh, accomplish? And how do you measure that effectiveness? What is the metric that you're using? And I think that this becomes very clear when we're thinking about the consequences of U.S. drone policy on developing an international precedent for drone use. And um, I think we can sort of take the perspective, well, the US knows what it's doing. You can disagree with this, but the US knows what it's doing. Trust us. We have good intelligence. These are really important operations, and um, we, they're vital to our, our security. If other countries use that argument, we suddenly have a lot of questions about where's your evidence from, what intelligence are you using, what are the long-term implications of that. And so I think as we think about um, how drones are proliferating, because they are proliferating, and how we are expanding um, the number of users around the world, we need to think about what precedent is the U.S. setting and how it um, will affect how our partners and for sure our adversaries are using this technology. Um, so I think I, I do want to um, take a moment to sort of look at what the U.S. is doing internationally 
um, because I think there's a connection. There may be a disconnect, however, um, on what the U.S. is changing and doing domestically and how that's going to affect its work internationally with its allies and partners. And, um, and I think it's particularly relevant because we're seeing sort of a renewed interest by the Trump administration in pursuing the development of international standards um, on drone export and use. And so, you know, we want to make sure that there's some consistency in sort of what's happening domestically and what's happening internationally, but also that when we're setting international standards, that we're doing so at a very high level, that we're not actually lowering, lowering the bar that perhaps already exists through other international frameworks, but that we're also um, creating an environment where there's responsibility and, uh, and accountability. So um, in late 2016, sort of one of the last things that the Obama administration did was to initiate a process um, called the Joint Declaration um, on the International um, uh, or Development of International Standards for the Export and Subsequent Use of Armed Drones. And this initiative really sought to um, develop global standards. It, it didn't say what those standards are, but it said, we all sort of agree there should be standards and we should have a process to do so. So it was pretty vague, but they got 53 countries to sign on to this. And those 53 countries, I think, demonstrate that there is an appetite to ensure that there are standards, that we're not just saying you can use drones and operations and strike whomever you want, whenever you want, with absolutely no consequences. So I do think it's a positive sign that there are countries that are willing to engage in these conversations. So the Trump administration came out, they said we want to, um, we want to continue this. It's sort of been relatively quiet um, for about nine months on this, but there is some work that is um, in emerging on these issues. I think a lot of questions remain as to sort of what the level of US engagement is, how the rest of the world will view an initiative led by the United States and by the Trump administration, um, what it, to what extent sort of experts um, who have experience in developing international standards are going to be engaged, um, what the priorities will be, what standards um, look like. Are they sort of at the highest level or are they sort of a low level that gives um, sort of permission for actions which maybe other countries or other experts would not feel are acceptable. So I think there's a lot of questions about the, the specifics. But I think there's also a larger question that we need to ask ourselves, and that is, you know, what are we trying to accomplish with developing international standards? Are we trying to say, do as we say, not as we do? I mean, that's sort of a cynical view that I can't help myself. Are we? Are we more concerned about sort of the characteristics of this technology than we are about the technology itself? So would standards apply to other systems if they also do the same things or are used in the same way? Are we singling out this particular weapon system in a platform, really? Let's be honest, it's a platform to use of other weapons. Are we singling out this technology in a way that potentially could be detrimental to other systems and other use of force um, operations. So I think we need to think about what are the ramifications of sort of separating drones out and saying what exists already in terms of export criteria and controls, in terms of um, use and in international law and legal frameworks. If those are not enough, why are they not enough? And would such standards apply to other systems as well? I think those are important questions 
that we need to ask if we're truly concerned about the threshold um, for use of legal force, for example. I just think those are responsible. And we also then, if we decide, yes, we do need to develop international standards around drones, which the answer very well may be yes. But if we say yes, how do we ensure that as the technology develops for these systems and other systems, that we future-proof whatever it is that we do? So as you know, when you're, whenever you try to regulate something, if the technology already exists, you're regulating it from behind, and it's basically moved by the time it moves through the bureaucratic process. So how do we future-proof future a process to ensure that it is not sort of irrelevant the moment that you... Um, that you um, can, that you, that you address it. I think the, the United States and other governments that are involved in this issue are, are trying to combine issues of export controls and use. And I think that's an interesting approach and one we don't see often. We can, you know, the arms trade treaty looks at export control and use and tries to bring them together, but there are limited cases where that, that is, the, is, the, is the case. You know, we're looking to stop proliferation, to irresponsible, and you can define that how you are, but to irresponsible users, but also avoid unacceptable consequences. And those unacceptable consequences could be um, civilian harm, it could be use outside legal frameworks, it could be violations of international law, whatever that unacceptable use is. So how do you, you tie these things together? Because I think they're, they're really noble ideas and potentially even very useful ideas. But I think it's going to be a challenge to, for example, focus on exports and the subsequent use of those newly exported systems. What do you do with all the systems that are already out there? How do you determine if this was, you know, was this a drone I already had in my arsenal or is this a new one I got? I think there's a lot of sort of practicalities that will be difficult. So as with everything, sort of the devil is in the details. And just to try and, because I love sort of being a moderator and a panelist, to try and bring together um, all of the things that we talked about, as I was thinking about these issues in terms of what they mean for setting an international precedent, there were three areas that really struck out to me. One is sort of this notion of proliferation, one is this no uh, notion of proper use, and the third is, is transparency. So if we think about proliferation, we know that the proliferation is, is proliferating wildly. Um, we, when we first, I think our first drones event here was probably three or four years ago, and we had a very small number of countries that had access to this technology and were using it actively. That number continues to grow. Pretty much every event that we do on drones here, we can add another country or two to the list. So how do we control proliferation without developing a sort of have and have not adversarial relationship or pushing purchasers to less scrupulous manufacturers and exporters where we can basically exert no control whatsoever and you end up with an, a system where you have bad actors buying technology and using it in ways that we would prefer that they not to. With regards to proper use, I'm thinking about sort of these notions of accountability, um, which goes to sort of both um, Alex and Waleed's point about, you know, acknowledging when mistakes are made because mistakes are made in war. It, it is the reality. How do you respond to those mistakes? How do you strengthen um, legal frameworks? There is, don't let anyone tell you different, there is a wide body of international law that's already out there that relates to use of force. And how do we 
look at sort of international human rights law, international humanitarian law, law of armed conflict, how do we reiterate them in a way that doesn't undermine them? Because that's my fear, that if we start saying, well, it applies here but not here, and we're going to parse out this where it's applicable and where it's not, then we sort of lose what we already had, and that makes me a bit nervous. Um, and then lastly, transparency. So, which is a good thing for all the, all the reasons that you described. And, and in an international context, it could even mean more, right? It could be knowing what has gone to which country and how they're being used. And so you know what your partners and allies are doing. And you're sharing information. And you're saying, hey, I, this is actually, it looks suspicious, but there's actually, this is civilians here. This is a wedding party. This isn't actually a gathering of terrorist actors. And as Alex said, there's a lot of aims that that transparency accomplishes. Um, I think, you know, as a sort of a, as an individual, right, transparency lets us know what's being done in our name and allows us to hold our leaders to account. And if we don't know what the new policy is, if we don't know where the strikes are happening, it's harder to have intelligent conversations and fact-based conversations to say, this is of concern, this is of, um, of great comfort, whatever the case may be. But I do want to say, and, and this is not just to throw cold water on, on transparency, but transparency is a policy prescription. There is no concrete obligation to be transparent. It is a value. It is something that we hold dear. And I think it's really important that the U.S. maintains an open and transparent um, U.S. policy that allows us to support our broader strategic objectives. So I think we have to think about sort of what our value is in this country towards transparency and how do we export that. I don't know if you can export transparency, but that idea, that concept of transparency and establish a proper standard um, for some international norm. So I think I will stop there and open it to questions because I want to make sure that we do have time. I know we have quite a few reporters in the audience and I know you all are on deadlines. And so if there is um, a reporter that wants to ask a question first, I'm going to use my prerogative to allow that and to also ask you to hold the mic straight down so we don't get the feedback and to introduce yourself when you ask your question. So any reporters? I'm looking at you. Not going to raise your hand. Okay, okay go ahead. <laughs> I wrote about today, the story that ran today about the export issue uh, for, for drones. And sorry to use the term, but that's what we call it. Yeah, um, but so I wanted to ask Lou to be honest. You were un, in the Obama administration right up to the end, is that correct? Until uh, early 2016. Okay. So you were there during, uh, in 2015, when they announced their policy uh, for, uh, for export of you know, UAVs. Um, and were you, did you participate in that in any fashion? I did not work. Okay, um, but part of the NFC at the, at the time. Yeah. And I guess what I'm trying to get a handle on is um, the, the complaint from the industry that we're hearing so strongly is that it's from the, the drone makers is that they, that the, administ the administration didn't go far enough. That they actually, even while claiming they were opening the way to greater sales, they're actually imposing tighter restrictions and the Trump administration is now working on a, a much more, uh, a much sharper, you know, uh, sort of expansion of, and, 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 and the loosening of the rules uh, than, than they did before. Um, I'm wondering, and maybe you can ask a number of the, the, the panelists, what do you think are the risks, the dangers of doing that, of, 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 of uh, the U.S. somewhat unilaterally declaring that they, they want to move to greater, um, sort of uh, a greater flow of, of drones for the purpose of job creation and the like, 
um, while secondarily maybe trying to get some international rene renegotiation of things like the MTCR uh, to do that. Yeah, I'm probably up here, the person who knows the most about export controls. Um, I think, so I think there's a couple of things here. One is that, I think there's a, uh, without getting into, should we be selling more or less? I think that is a different question. Is, you know, is it hard for U.S. manufacturers to sell drones abroad? And the answer is yes, and for good reason. As Luke said, it's not that the technology is that sophisticated, right? You can just, the, the aircraft exists. The issue is that it has been controlled under, till now, the MTCR. And the MTCR was not intended to address issues related to drones. The MTCR, the missile tech, this is getting a little bit wonky, but the missile technology control regime was really to stop the proliferation of missiles that were used for, to um, transport weapons of mass destruction. Now, it had very technical specifications, and those technical specifications catch drones. And so, for certain categories of systems, there is a presumption of denial, which I want to reiterate is not a no. It doesn't mean it's not a prohibition. It is simply saying you start at no, and you have to get to yes. Whereas with other systems, you start at yes, and then you have to say, why no? Right? That's how licensing works. There is, I think, a misunderstanding um, by either licensing officers or those who are involved in the transfer process. If they see something that shows up as a category one system that has a presumption of denial, the inclination is to say no without maybe doing the due diligence that would get you to the yes. It's just easier to say no. You have the cover of the MTCR. I think if there was a fundamental shift in the understanding of what presumption of denial meant, it would make things move more quickly and thoroughly through the system. There may be reasons, though, why you want to start at no and then get yourself to yes. There may be, at, there, and we have sold, even with that presumption of denial, category one systems have gone to other countries. So it is possible to overcome. So it'll be interesting to see how that is addressed in a new policy, whether or not you're now starting at yes and then get to no and have to make a decision why you wouldn't export, or if you maintain sort of those controls that prevent weapons, um, not just uh, drones, but other weapons from, from leaving the United States. So I, don't, I don't know what the answer is, but I think if we had a shift in sort of mentality of why this exists and how we overcome it, then there may be less of a backlash against it. 
Tak. I'm wondering if um, it's possible to draw conclusions um, about who, uh, under the during the Trump administration, which organizations are, are are conducting these strikes, the CIA versus the Pentagon. Alex, you had mentioned that under in the Trump administration, uh, the the military commanders are sort of keeping the same policy of announcing strikes in Yemen and Somalia um, uh, as they had in the Obama administration. I'm wondering whether, um, taking that, what you can sort of then say based on the totality of strikes by published organizations, long war journal, et cetera, whether we can actually draw conclusions that the CIA is also doing a number of strikes uh, based on known strikes that are not, you know, acknowledged publicly. And is there any, and maybe Luke can talk about, um, you know, where they were at the end of the Obama administration about, you know, this Ballyhoo transfer to the, to the, to the Pentagon, whether they, they really sort of ended up with any sort of clear answers there. Sure, yeah. So um, it's difficult to say because it's difficult always to know what all the number of strikes that are happening in a particular country. I mean, there are organizations like the Bureau of Investigative Journalism, which probably is the most comprehensive tracking of what's going on. I think it, it looks like in Pakistan it's still the CIA mainly, and those strikes are not disclosed. And I think it's partly because it's the CIA and partly because of a deal with the Pakistani government that they don't want to be seen to be consenting to these strikes, which goes back a long way and is also very problematic um, in terms of democratic accountability, both with the U within US and Pakistan. In Yemen and Somalia, if you look at the numbers, I mean, I don't have them at my fingertips, but counted by um, the Bureau of Investigative Journalism, it appears, it appears that the military is doing most of these. And if you look at the first few months of, um, in Yemen, for example, the first few months of the Trump administration, there were a lot more strikes. Um, and most of them were acknowledged. Some were acknowledged saying, oh, we did like 30 strikes this weekend. It was not like the previous. Uh, and that was a slight backsliding in terms of not acknowledging individual strikes. They said, no, we just did 30 in this, in this period. But they were acknowledged, and I just, that indicates that it was probably the military. There's also a question, though, maybe there is some CIA involvement in those strikes, but uh, the practice is different in terms of when they're carrying out. And I think there was, the Trump administration said early on that they wanted to resume sort of responsibility um, for many strikes to the CIA. They wanted to turn that back over, that that was not something um, that had, been eliminated um, during the Obama administration, but there had been sort of a, and maybe you can talk about a rhetorical discussion about maybe this should be sort of a DOD operation versus a CIA one. And the Trump administration came out pretty, I think it was like March-ish maybe, uh, March, April, that saying, you know, actually we'd like to see the CIA take on a larger role. But I don't know if Luke, you want to mention where you Yeah, um, well I can't, I can't say anything about uh, what CIA may or may not be doing, but I would say <laughs>
thing you're speaking about some of the theaters that we currently operate in, places like Yemen and Somalia, um, it is really important because, uh, you know, as Malik spoke to, there's not exactly widespread uh, support for these types of operations. And, and in order to maintain at least a level of tolerance, um, it, it, you know, that even might be too strong of a word, you have to be able to explain what you did, roughly why you did it, and to be able to own up to the mistakes you made. You also, I think, have to be able to differentiate between uh, actions So there's lots of reports out there about what may or may not be happening. That, um, I think that anything that rolls back that transparency uh, would be a real loss for um, for our, our operators, uh, not to mention our, our moral credibility. And that's something as we're, I think what we'll do is take a few questions um, at once and then answer them. But I think if you look back to our 2014 um, task force report that the Stimson Center put out that was led by um, former CENTCOM commander John Abizade and um, Rosa Brooks from the Defense Department, um, we said there shouldn't be a um, prohibition on CIA strikes, that they should be the exception and not the rule, primarily for the very reasons that you described, that there is a level of accountability that's required, a level of transparency that's required, and if you're doing something in the name of the United States, it should be open and tra transparent. Um, to make sure that we're fulfilling our responsibilities. So let's take, we'll just, you know what we'll do? We'll start on this corner, we'll pass the mic down and just go down this, down this uh, line. Hi, Genevieve Boudelier from the Peace and Security Funders Group. We are a network of 67 private, public, and operating foundations. This conversation uh, reminds me a lot about conversations we have regarding nuclear nonproliferation and nuclear security. Um, so I'm wondering, is there a role that the philanthropic sector can play in this conversation that they might not be playing at the moment? Is there an opportunity for the philanthropic sector to intervene? Can you just pass it just down this row? Thank you. Um, this has been a great discussion. Thank you. Um, my name is Daphne Eviatar with Amnesty International. And I just want to point out the very important thing you said about international law and that there is actually a body of international law. Not everybody agrees exactly on what it says, but it does govern when people can be lethally targeted and when they can't. There's a difference between whether they're in an armed conflict or they're outside of an armed conflict. And I was struck, Luke, that you didn't mention the law at all in what you were talking about, but you did mention a lot of strategic concerns that are somewhat parallel to the law, but they're distinct. And I think it's a really, and I also want to point out that the export controls, well, that's another parallel but different mm -hmm. issue that has commercial interests that are very different than the legal interests, which really are about protecting civilians, which is what Malid was talking about. And I thought that was so important because you do tend to, to lose, lose sight of the impact on civilians, or once in a while talk about, well, it makes the United States look bad if they kill the wrong people. But really, the law is about making sure that they're not killing the wrong people. And so I just want to kind of point out the importance of the international law framework, and particularly international human rights law, because it is about making sure that civilians are not killed, that they're appropriately defined, that someone can't just be called a militant because they're holding a weapon and they look like they might be a terrorist, that those definitions need to be applied really carefully, including in US policy I don't think it was good enough under Obama, but it sounds like it might get worse under Trump. It's a really important issue because it relates to how many civilians end up being killed, how, how much do people end up hating the United States for those reasons, and you know, how do these, ex how do these um, weapon systems end up being used poorly because the law isn't being applied. 
So just want to point thank that out. Thank you. Thank you, Jackie. Uh, Peter Humphrey, I'm an intelligence analyst and a former diplomat. I challenge the uh, U.S. interest standard because I think a busload bus full of torturers headed to a Damascus prison would be a legitimate uh, drone strike target, even though there's no American interest. My question is for uh, Alex. Uh, um, I wish we could find a Colombian drug lord uh, to drone strike because right now every single victim of the drone policy has been Muslim. And I'm okay with that. I mean, if your religion inspires most of the world's mass murderers, uh, then your religion's going to suffer disproportionately. But I think, don't we have a sort of moral obligation to inform the Muslim world that if you marry Zawahiri, you are collateral damage? If you sell guns to Zawahiri, you are collateral damage. Um, if, if you give uh, Zawahiri a night's stay in your house, you are collateral damage. Don't, don't you sort of have an obligation to inform the Muslim world uh, that, you know, even though we try to minimize civilian casualties, uh, this is, these are the exceptions. When you play with these guys, you will die. There was a gentleman behind you that had a question. And then we'll... Edward Douglas, Security Assistance Monitor. Um, I just had a quick question about the U.S. standard on transparency. So, uh, Mr. Moorhead, you said that, you know, with drone controls, you know, we can't, with this accountability, we can set a standard for the international community. What does that mean if we decide to loosen export controls and we're willing to give other countries drones? That's on them to, you know, have that same standard. We don't really have any more control over the accountability and the use of drones. Are we willing to give that up? Is that what we're signaling there? And then quickly here to have some very divergent questions. Um, Jeff Abramson with the Arms Control Association and the Forum on the Arms Trade. A couple ones. One is, uh, if the drone, if the Trump administration wanted to engage in setting international norms, a, do you think it's maybe too late at this point? Are there too many other countries who don't really care what the United States does uh, involved, or um, if we haven't nominated anybody, is there anybody to do this work? So. You know, is it too late, and what might it be if the, if the Trump administration wanted to engage? Um, and then, Walid, uh, just thinking specifically of Yemen now, um, how much at this point in the conflict there is drone use what's the symbol of the United States? I'm thinking there was going to be a vote at the end of this week, which I think is going to be postponed until next month around authorization of military force uh, to the Saudi coalition for their continued activity which could be a good step in sort of reigning in Saudi behavior, but I don't think it was going to impact on sort of the U.S. targeting of AQAP. Um, uh, you know, at what state, how complex now is the sentiment in Yemen um, that, you know, if the drone policies changed, is there so much other stuff, or if other stuff changed, it wouldn't matter, you know, are these all mixed up at this point? So I think looking at the clock, we have six minutes, and I counted six questions. And so what I am going to do is perhaps ask each of the panelists to just give two minutes. They can choose to answer what they can. And then for those who don't feel like their question was answered, we have time after the event. But I'm going to get you there for that first pitch, I promise. All right, with that in mind, I'll try and be brief. I'll try, I'll address like what Daphne said <laughs> and Ed uh, said at the same time. Yeah, I think, you know, 
there is a real question, do we want the US to be setting the standards here? Um, and I, I'm not sure I clearly explain what some of the concerns are, but it's not just about who may be targeted in war, but there are questions around the flexibility with which the US has interpreted its legal obligations around the use of force. And they include, you know, the use of force is allowed in self-defense, but then what does self-defense mean and how that's interpreted? There have been a lot of questions about how flexibly and broadly the US has interpreted that. There have been questions about how the US has blurred the lines between war and peacetime. You know, in peacetime there are much more restrictive rules, um, whereas in war um, it's a more permissive regime. And, and there are also, even during war, there are real questions about the broad definition that the US says it's a, of people that it's allowed to target. Um, and I think there are concerns outside the US with many other governments don't share those exact views. And so there's a question not just about export of technology, but whether these precedents are helpful. And, and it's not just a, a precedent for, um, that, that is concerning for other countries around the world, including countries that don't own or use drones. But I think it's a, a debate for the US and uh, worth having within the US. Does the US want these flexible interpretations are they happy that these broad, um, flexible standards are in the hands of um, President Trump and his administration? And, and what does this mean for the US in terms of how it's involved in war and the use of force around the world generally, as well as the impact on civilians and, and so on, which is at the heart of this? Um, and one final point on that, the, the lack of reference to human rights law by the US has been striking in all of this, and uh, that absence is, a, is another major concern. Just quickly on, on one other question about, um, a, a, about uh, whether we, the US has an obligation to notify people about collateral damage. I, I, I didn't really get the whole generalization about the Muslim population, and I found that a bit, uh, I don't really want to respond to that. But if, we, if I flip the question around a bit, the US should be clearly explaining what its legal basis for strikes is, who can and cannot be targeted, in what um, circumstances its policy rules apply and do not apply, um, so that people know where they're at risk. I think some of the categories of people that you uh, identified, um, you know, that gets close to what Trump said in terms of bombing families, they should not be uh, 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 someone that's married to al-Zawahiri is not a legitimate target under international law. Um, there are then other, you know, we'll get into complicated questions about particular incidents. But I think, just flipping that around, I think it really is important for the US and all governments and countries using force to clearly explain what their legal reasons are for strikes and how they interpret the, the legal norms that govern. Um, But, you know, the, the, the ability to go in and do deep dive research, things that journalists and organizations don't have the resources to commit to, and, and to be able to come out with any comment of that um, is really, really important work. Um, I hope we can be in a better place where the U.S. government is able to push back on specific areas and have more of a dialogue rather than a listening session. Um, which brings me to, to, to Daphne and, um, and your question about a widened reference um, uh, to the international legal obligations. Um, first, I'm not a lawyer, so I, I feel like I'm 
uh, but by, uh, by colleague, I know my colleague uh, Ryan Goodman of Just Security has been in a bit of a debate with you and, and some others around um, the legal obligation for it. And I feel like it's one of those things like I want to jump into it. I think I've seen the comments of Ryan that it's like, um, it's sort of like a Steph Curry and uh, uh, um, you know, Russell Westbrook asking to play and give you know, pick up. We're all about the same height. That's going to really badly for me. <laughs> and that's kind of how I feel about it. That said, I, I think based on uh, the experience I had as a non-lawyer working on this in government, um, the, the standard of using the law of armed conflict as the legal basis and then imposing additional standards that approximate uh, or that, that are um, consistent in some ways with international human rights law without getting into a full debate on that. Uh, but the, the concept that we're presented to CCP to me strikes me as the right, um, the right balance. But again, uh, I get way out of my depth there very quickly. Um, and then just finally, two gentlemen in front, I'm sorry I didn't catch your name, Peter. Um, uh, to your point about uh, the continuing and the threat to the person standard, you know, I'm not 100% convinced that that's the right standard um, on two grounds. One, I don't know that the imminent standard always makes total sense. Um, because oftentimes, if you think about in the region, if you did rate accounts of how we targeted Al Qaeda and Al Qaeda and, um, and related groups since 9 11, read Stanley and Crystal's book, um, read my colleague Peter Bergen's book, there's some network based approaches that we know prove that we know actually work in, uh, in harming terrorist organizations. If you have an imminent standard, imminence and the, the most critical part of the network is removed, and not always be the same thing. Um, as to the US person standard, you know, President Obama, a year after um, the National Defense University speech, uh, went to West Point and, and announced that we were going to have a partnership-driven strategy. Um, and if you think about that, the logical extension of that is we're going to put people on the ground, we're going to sit, provide intel, logistics, advisory support, but we're going to tell them we can't provide fire support to your actions. Even if you're going to go into a buzzsaw against the enemy, we can't provide fire support because it's not a threat to U.S. persons. That's a pretty hard conversation to have with a partner. Uh, it's equally hard to say, you know, President so-and-so, you've been a really great counterterrorism partner for us, but if there's a threat on your life, you know, you're not a U.S. person, and that's hard for us to back you up on that. So the, the, the challenge here is that the continuing threat standard is a cohesive standard that has some logical applications of it. When you start to create a, some loopholes for, um, uh, for, for persons other than U.S. persons or for allowing network-based targeting, you sort of risk the... Um, And if you guys, I know we're over, but if you could indulge two more minutes, so okay. I'll, while we eat together. Okay, thank you. Uh, I want to, uh, briefly, I will touch on three questions, uh, and uh, very briefly, I echo your uh, points about uh, from Fellerby about supporting civil society groups, human rights groups who are doing amazing work. Um, uh, that even the governments, like when they conduct their assessments, like the U.S., they cannot reach some of these places, but civil society can, and they have more accurate numbers. Um, the, also, very briefly about the, we always hear about this collateral damage. There are a lot of mistakes that are not even collateral damage, and they have not been uh, explained why and what have been and, uh, addressed by the governments. And these leave scars on these communities forever without acknowledging. Um, that, and this also transition to the last uh, point about the extent of this um, impact on civilians, uh, drones specifically within the current conflict, um, it adds more trauma to the communities who have been subjected to, to drone strikes. Uh, they have been currently Yemen going through a, 
uh, a conflict which have uh, impacted 80% of the, uh, of the population. And there is a Saudi-led coalition of 10 countries um, leading a, a, a military intervention in Yemen um, that have amounted to a very devastating, uh, devastating results of death, deaths of over 10,000 individuals and uh, injuries of over 40,000 individuals. And the U.S. part is comes to to continue. They continue the counterterrorism approach and the limited military approach um, without looking into the broader uh, current conflict, uh, which is problematic and add trauma into the uh, into the fuel. And the last uh, point that you made also, which is very important about the about the authorization act, uh, military authorization act, where the U.S. currently sells arms to Saudi coalition, which is. Uh, currently under uh, by uh, the UN experts, panel of experts uh, who report to the Security Council and appointed by the Security Council, uh, UN Security Council, um, uh, uh, says that the Saudi are involved in interna international rights violations in their military targeting in Yemen, especially by also using uh, cluster munitions sold by the US and by the UK and other countries. The, US, the, 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 the mistakes even by the Saudis have been accounted uh, for for better or worse, uh, but, uh, they they take the the, Saudi, the U.S. take the blame of the mistakes of the Saudis, and they have uh, ex, uh, um, outsourced U.S. policies to the Saudis when it comes to Yemen. This have tremendous impact on the ground because uh, the, the 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 limited approach of drone strikes, which are increasing, have uh, uh, have longer impact, and uh, communities. Uh, as a whole are impacted. You're not dealing with specific cases. You're dealing with communities and a national concern about it. And uh, selling the arms, continuing to sell the arms to countries who are involved in international rights violations, that adds uh, a lot of uh, a lot of responsibility to the U.S. Um, uh, to, to the U.S. And they, the U.S. have been blamed and have been used by local groups, rivalry groups against the government that the U.S. is involved directly with the conflict. Thank you. I think this proves that we have a lot more to talk about and that we could continue this conversation um, indefinitely. And so I will draw your attention to a little tease for uh, the, the Stimson Center will be launching a report, an action plan on U.S. drone policy for the Trump administration in December. Um, and so I look forward to engaging in future conversation with all of you and hopefully uh, finding a way to have a more responsible, accountable, transparent uh, U.S. drone policy in the future. So thank you all for, for coming, and we'll see you at our next event.